Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Please welcome this evening's guest moderator, author of the novel Delicious, available this spring, Ruth Reichel, and tonight's guest, author of the book The Art of Simple Food 2, available now in the iBook Store, Alice Waters. Okay, I think I want to start by say, apologizing to everyone because I just got back from Japan today, so I'm a little jet-lagged. But um, this time yesterday, I was wandering around a community garden in Tokyo. Um, and I think it's something that would really interest you, Alice, because this is actually a garden that's owned by the little community, and apparently each little area of Tokyo has one of these, and it's owned by the community. This land in Tokyo is so valuable that this particular piece of land, which isn't very big, is worth $5 million. But the people there are willing to pay the taxes to support it because growing local seasonal food is so important to them. And one of the ways that they support it is every farmer there is required to give, I think, 20% of the crop. And they have a little farm stand there. It's an honor stand. And they come and harvest their uh, vegetables every morning and put 20% of it out. And local people come by and buy it. And so, I mean, I feel very much that what you're doing in the art of simple food is very much a Japanese aesthetic. I mean, it's very much about um, being mindful of what you eat. And it makes me uh, think of a farm uh, down in San Diego that you and I know so well. It's called the China Ranch. And in the early days of Chez Panisse, um, I was struggling to find the fruits and vegetables that tasted like those that I had tasted when I went to France when I was 19. Um, and I had a friend, a Frenchman, who sent up a box of little green beans up to me. And I just, I couldn't believe that they were the little French haricot vert. And I said, you have to send them to me every week. You have to go to that farm and, and send them. And here we are, um, well, almost, uh, well, 35 years later, let's say. Uh, and they have become very close friends of ours. And they have 45 acres in the richest community uh, in California. It's right near Rancho Santa Fe, right down in that, near the, near the water. And they grow hundreds of varieties of fruits and vegetables on that, on that plot of land. Well, do you, I don't know if you remember this, but the first time that you took me there, I was, um, oh God, it was even before I was at the LA Times, I was still working in San Francisco, and I wanted to write about them, and they said, oh, we don't talk to journalists. And so I called you and said, will you take me down there? And we went down there and spent two days, and it was the most remarkable, I mean, this was in the late 70s. This was the mo I mean, this was at a time when vegetables and fruits in America were cotton. I mean, they had no flavor. 
And right before we left, we picked strawberries for dessert at Chez Panisse. And you and I got on a plane, and it was a fairly small plane flying from San Diego to Oakland. And we each had a flat of strawberries on our laps. And the aroma of these strawberries was so intense that one by one, every single person on that plane came over and begged for a strawberry. And they all said, I had forgotten what a strawberry could taste like because all you could get were these sort of beautiful, tasteless strawberries. And I watched you giving dessert at Chez Panisse away because that is what you do. I mean, you, I mean, your generosity is, oh God, here's a plane full of people that I can teach about flavor. And at that moment, it was really, the, for me, the aha moment where I thought, America has to change because we can grow this, but we're not. And I mean, for me, it really was that moment of knowing that things like the art of simple food were in our future. Well, I think that's really the reason that I wanted to write this book is because um, we need to learn about the fruits and vegetables that have really remarkable flavor. And they're a little bit different in different parts of the country. And especially, I was just looking at this, these apples that all came from the Union Square Farmer's Market today. Now, how many varieties of them are there? Like nine, nine different varieties of apples. Now, they look very similar to apples that we have in California, but I don't know the names. But our these. apples are better. <laughs> Your apples are better. Your tomatoes are better, too. I hate to say that, but we just don't have the humidity to have that really wonderful tomato that I remember from growing up in New Jersey. I mean, you need to have the real heat and the moisture to get that tomato. But I, I think we're very late to coming to thinking about farming in this particular way in the United States. Maybe there are little pockets of people that have been interested in it in the south uh, of the country. Uh, but the people who are really planting for, for, for taste and for what grows well are few and far between. I mean, were. But I think that that's what's going on right now. Well, it's fascinating. I, I was at, about a month ago, uh, Dan Barber did a conference for seed breeders at Stone Barns. And it was just amazing listening to these breeders talking about um, bringing varieties back. Because what breeders used to do was breed for a specific region, for a specific soil, so that um, the kale in one part of the country or even in one county would be different than the kale in another county because it depended on the soil and, and farmers developed things for um, their climate, for the pests and so forth. And that has all gone away because what breeders now breed for is uniformity, and for durability, not for flavor and not for sustainability. And there's a new movement now of trying to bring back 
um, the old way of doing things where um, people are breeding specifically so, so that we will have the kind of variety on this page that you're looking at now where there isn't one kind of kale or one kind of radicchio or one kind of broccoli, but hundreds and that they each taste different depending where they're grown and that they each demand a certain knowledge of the farmer. But I think the, I, I really think that the only way that we're going to change our food system is if people have an opportunity to taste something fantastic. Because, I mean, that's how I was brought into food. I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't like anything, uh, except for uh, tomatoes and corn in the summer. I mean, really, I was just such a picky eater. And my parents just, uh, you know, were, were indoctrinated like everyone else was around frozen food. And, and it's, it wasn't looking for what was ripe at that moment in time. Well, what was the first thing you remember tasting other than tomatoes and corn tomatoes <laughs> that and corn. blew you away? <laughs> well, the first thing I ate, that really blew me away was a wild strawberry in France. I think that was the next taste. So, so you, you were literally grown before... I, I was grown before I really tasted something just irresistible where I just had to find out where they got that. You know. And when Fanny was growing up, did she eat everything? Well, uh... My daughter, um, who's now 30, um, kind of grew up in my little backyard garden and at Chez Panisse. So I have to say that she had rather special circumstances for uh, tasting things that were, were really right. But when she was little, she used to go out in the garden and, and she just sort of smell and taste around. You know, she'd pick the peas and eat those. I mean, she just uh, trial and error a little bit. I, I, and I would always plant things for her that I knew, you know, that would surprise her and delight her. And so there were always little patches of strawberries and, and things like mint and peas. I made her a little... Uh, PTP and a PTP, uh, a PTP, <laughs> grew the vines right up to the top, and then she would sit inside and she would pick the peas. <laughs> but I, 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 I didn't want to really tell her what she should eat and what she shouldn't eat, and it was very important to me. I think it's very, very important that kids really have the opportunity to educate themselves. That you that you take them uh, to those farms where you can pick your own, that they're involved with you when you go to the marketplace, that they're, they're looking and seeing and touching and smelling. So have you found with the Edible Schoolyard that there's one particular food that transforms children instantly? I think every parent is looking for this. Uh, well, uh, I, certainly fruits are kind of the first entry point. Um, uh, I mean, uh, the problem with fruit is, though, that kids are constantly bombarded with sweet. artificial fruit right. flavors that are... So, you know, if you've tasted 
the kind of cherry that shows up in ice cream or yogurt or candy, a regular cherry can taste very um, subtle. Oh, I know, but it's a very different thing when you pick that cherry yourself. It's different. When, and it's really different when you plant the seed for the pea and that grows, and then you pick those peas, and then you eat them. There's not uh, a kid, and these are middle school ki uh, children at the Edible Schoolyard in Berkeley. Um, they're teenagers, in fact. And they come into that garden, and it's not because they grew up in Berkeley. There, there are kids that come from all around, um, and they speak 20 different languages at home uh, at that school. And yet, when they come into that garden, uh, when they are involved in the process of growing and cooking the food, they all want to eat it. And it's when their friends are offering it to them. And they always say yes. They always say yes. There, in fact, there was a great story early on in, uh, at Chez Panisse, I mean, Chez Panisse, at the Edible Schoolyard in Berkeley um, uh, about year two. And the teacher was uh, going to make something with the kids for their parents at, at school, at sort of a, uh, an introduction to what they were doing in the classroom. And she went out to the garden to get something uh, really good for them to cook. And all we had was kale. And, and this was before the this, kale re this revolution. Was, yes, this was way before that. And she brought in the kale uh, into the kitchen. And the kids were all happily ready to do this. And they cooked it with garlic and olive oil. And they made their croutons. And, and um, uh, she, she thought, well, this is great. They're all involved with this. But then they started to look at, uh, at the platter, and they didn't want to taste it. And she was so worried uh, that, that, that they wouldn't eat it, and their parents are all there, and what's going to happen is going to show that this doesn't work. And it turns out that they were looking on the platter for the one that they had made. Oh. <laughs> now, isn't that great? I mean, it was just kind of revelatory to us. And we just know that when they are involved with the cooking, that it really, they take ownership and talk, prod. Talk a little bit about what you're doing in Sacramento at the high school there. Well, I have kind of a crazy idea for a program in a high school. We're so worried. Um, when so many kids are dropping out of high school. And when they drop out of high school, they end up in jail. And that costs, needless to say, hundreds and thousands of dollars, um, 85,000 to be precise, for each person who goes to jail for a year. And it's kind of frightening because once they are in jail, they may come out a little bit, but then they go back in. And so I thought that if we had a program where the kids actually 
ran the whole cafeteria themselves as a business, that they were not required to sit in their chairs, that they were asked to go out in the community to find the farms, to calculate uh, uh, the, the amount of produce and all that they would need to cook the food, that they actually did the cooking themselves, they did the budgets, they did all of the academic subjects, but in the context of running basically a restaurant at the school. So how long, how long has this been going? <laughs> well, it hasn't quite begun yet. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dream. But we have the mayor of Sacramento, and his school uh, is incredibly enthusiastic. And they started to plant the garden at the school uh, a year and a half ago. And they have connected with all the farms that are in support of this. They have restaurants in Sacramento that are willing to take the kids as interns to teach them how to cook. Uh, they have the money from philanthropists to underwrite it so that every single child eats at school for free. Oh, there was a story on NPR a couple months ago about these kids in New Jersey who, if there's no money, there's a special room in the schools, and if their lunch account is not paid up, they get sent to sit out lunch. And I can't imagine. I heard this and thought, I mean, this in the richest country in the world, we can't feed kids lunch? I mean, it's just appalling. Well, I have, uh, I have a plan for changing uh, the food system in the United States. I have a, a big plan that if we decided on a criteria in the schools for the buying of food, and that if we decided that we were going to feed every child for free at school, that's 20% of the population in this country. And if the criteria were to buy local, sustainable, seasonal food, and we cooked, you know, uh, a food that, uh, that was affordable and delicious, of course, that we would really change farming overnight. I, I don't know if you remember this, but I did an article in New West Magazine, again in the 70s, where I went to four different communities in California, all of whom had exactly the same budget for food, and looked at how they were each feeding their kids from Oakland, where the woman who ran the school program was a monster who believed that everybody who worked for her was an idiot and that the only way they could do it was to have everything be frozen, to a woman in San Jose who very far ahead of her time, believed that one of the things that was causing ADD in the kids was processed food and decided that she was going to go to local farmers and that they were going to cook everything from scratch. And um, because most of the people who were working in the kitchens were Mexican, they were making amazingly delicious Mexican food. Um, and. Um, those kids were thriving. She was actually spending less money than the woman in Oakland. 
Um, so, you know, the idea that this is not possible is nonsense. It's totally possible. I mean, what it requires is a knowledge of cooking. Um, that um, in order to do this, we have to have people in those kitchens who know how to cook with what's available instead of just sort of taking, again, it comes back to the whole idea of, you know, what's local and being able to use what's local. And, and also being able to really connect with the farmers themselves, to be in that, that kind of communication. Uh, at first, when we started Chez Panisse, um, you know, we, we didn't know where we were going to get this food. And uh, I, you know, we were going to ethnic markets in San Francisco, and, and we were going to farm stands around that had a certain reputation for, for corn. And at a particular time, we were foraging along the roadsides. And you, I, and you were also persuading <laughs> farmers to do things. I mean, I remember Frank Del Porto telling me he thought you were crazy because you wanted him to kill the animals at, I think, the lambs at 30 pounds. And he said, you know, um, it's the same price as if they were 100. I don't know how she's going to manage to keep that restaurant going. Well, I, I, I was really just looking for this taste. I mean, really, that, that's what I was after. And then that's how I ended up at the doors of the organic farmers and ranchers. I was looking for that taste. And uh, we have a network of suppliers now. One main farm, and this book is dedicated to Bob Kennard. And there's lots of his wisdom in the book. Uh, he, uh, uh, he seemed very eccentric to me and uh, at the beginning. Uh, we found him. Uh, actually, my father found him. Your father? My father did. He, he and my mother um, thought I was uh, having to do too much work running around to all these farms, that they thought if we had one farm that was nearby, that uh, as a farmer that could grow all of the things for us, that it would just be, make my life a lot easier. So they decided to... Uh, uh, asked the Farm Bureau in, in, um, in Sacramento uh, where the organic farms were an hour from Chez Panisse. And they went around and visited 25 farms. They narrowed it down to three, and then they made a presentation to us. Uh, but they always wanted Bob Kennard because he planted these... Uh, vegetables in a way that they had never seen before. You came into the farm and you, you didn't see the beds of lettuce all laid out. It looked like almost like grass and flowers, like wildflowers. And when you got up close, he'd push the grasses away and down below would be this beautiful head of lettuce. And he was allowing uh, the nature to support the, the whole ecosystem around his fruits and vegetables. And he claimed that they were 10 times more nutritious because they had this very natural thing going on. Have you ever tested them? Well, <laughs> <laughs> well it turns out he is right. He is right. They are. They are. 
Okay, I think <laughs> um, it's time for questions. Uh, my question is, if you had to choose, what would be your last meal on Earth? Oh, <laughs> I think we said <laughs> to be yours. <laughs> Didn't you eat something in Japan that you just... You know, I, I get asked this a lot, <laughs> and every time someone asks me that, that I change my answer. Um, but, you know, the real answer is it would be an endless meal. So... <laughs> um, but um, I would probably start with um, a bunch of clams on the half shell, go on to a huge, I mean, this is my last meal, right? I would go on to a huge pile of caviar on wonderful buckwheat blini. Then I would have a really gorgeous salad. And then I would probably have a really great steak, um, cooked very rare, very charred on the out, black and blue, and um, a baked potato, uh, and a lot of bread and butter. And I, I, can, I can go on for a while, <laughs> but um, it would end with one perfect peach. Well, I think I'd have the same end. I would. I really, I thought at one point that I really could persuade anybody to, to do anything if they just, uh, if I gave them this perfect, ripe, Masamoto peach at that peak of ripeness. Although I have to say that having just come from Japan, at the end of this gorgeous kaiseki meal, we were given the most amazing melon I have ever tasted in my life. And um, that could maybe replace the peach. It was, it was fragrant, it was, and you put your spoon in it, it practically turned into liquid, and it was icy cold, it was so wonderful. When you were done, there was just this wonderful puddle of liquid on the plate. You picked up the plate and drank it. <laughs> well, you know, I had, when I was in Japan, one unforgettable last uh, little taste in one of those long meals. And it was a glass of uh, a citrus. I think it was a tangerine. And it was about this big. And it wasn't cold. And it wasn't room temperature. It was someplace right in between. And it was so refreshing. I mean, I just, again, that at the end of a meal, instead of pulling you down, it sort of lifts you up. It's like I, I think one of the, the, the foolishly simple recipes in this book is just taking some mint and verbena and putting it in a pot of boiling water and letting it seep. And having that at the end of a meal just sort of helps you um, digest and reflect on what you've The eaten. amazing thing about lemon verbena is um, if you go out and pick it and make a tisane out of it, it's so sweet that people are constantly accusing me of having put sugar in it. Is there anything, any type of food, like real food, not anything crazy in process that you don't like or that you thought you didn't like and learned how to like for both of you? I like just about it. And 
everything. <laughs> I mean, I really, really, there are very few foods I won't eat, um, including live ants and um, fish milt. And, but I loathe honey. I just, I can't swallow it. it it's Honey? Really? Yeah. It's, it, and you know who else? It, it, I bonded with Mary Frances Fisher over this. You're kidding. And the first time I went to interview her, she offered me tea and she said, I have no honey. And I said, well, that's okay. I loathe it. And she said, me too. <laughs> uh, see, now I love it. And one of my favorite honeys of all times is a chestnut honey that I discovered um, when I went to Italy um, in Tuscany. And I just make some vanilla ice cream and warm up the chestnut honey and pour it on the top. And people think it's just the greatest dessert. It is, it is. It's people who like thing. honey think that. <laughs> you know, I, think, I think I could, who knows, maybe not. I couldn't change your mind. Thank you for being here. I'm a big admirer of both of you. And so is my daughter, who lives in Australia. Um, I lived for 32 years on a fully sustainable farm in Florence, uh, a very tiny piece of land. We grew all our own food and had animals, uh, made bread, everything. And since I've moved back here, um, I feel that it's the proximity, uh, the farm to the table. I mean, literally, we were 100 yards from our food. And I think this is the biggest problem with taste. I can't find anything here, no matter what I pay for it or where I go, unless it's you know a farmer's market in Long Island, uh, that is really satisfying. I mean, we made our own honey, too. I'm, I miss it so much. There isn't a, a zucchini I've had. I, I've tried to raise them, and <laughs> it doesn't work. I, I really, I, I don't know where you find the answer to having that taste unless you are so close to your producer. Well, I think one of the things that's so remarkable to me about what they're doing in Tokyo is that you do. I mean, because they have these little community plots and anybody can go every morning and get something that was picked that morning and grown within a couple blocks of your house. I live up in the Hudson River Valley and I'm surrounded by farmers. Um, so I get my eggs from somebody down the street and now we have people who live a couple miles from me who are actually raising rice, um, which is remarkable to buy rice that's been raised in New York. Um, and you're right, it tastes different, you know, when you go to that farm stand and get those tomatoes. It does take, even the things in the farmer's market, when they've, you know, been picked the day before, it's different than when it was just picked. Which is why, you know, Alice's book is so much about growing. Grow it yourself, because um, it really, you know, a potato that you've pulled out of the earth I mean, we think of potatoes as something that are kind of year-round, but a fresh potato, new potato before those, before that sugar starts converting to starch, is a remarkable flavor. Well, I was going to say, I just spent some time in Rome, and um, uh, at the American Academy in Rome, where we've been doing a food project. 
And the first thing that we did was look for a farmer that, that uh, um, could bring the produce to the academy, uh, again, within an hour or so uh, of Rome. And we found this remarkable person. And I'll tell you, there are a hundred artists and scholars who eat there. And a lot of them are very involved with their art and work and have never really thought about food so much. And when they come into that, uh, you know, that circumstance of community dining, and they're asked to choose from these fruits and vegetables. They are won over uh, within, within the first week of being there. I mean, it's something amazing. Uh, and they're also connecting, getting to know the people who not only grow the food, but the people who cook the food. And they're invited into the kitchen. And I think that's a big part of it as well. But I have to say that uh, I have never eaten a pepper that tastes like the peppers that were grown in Rome. <laughs> and if you were in Florence, I suspect you had some of that experience of people who for 300 years have been picking and choosing over seeds for taste. And they have their own little plots of delicious, uh, I mean, really, uh, fantastic varietals. Thank you. Um, I just recently had an experience where I was getting a cold and I was debating if I should get a Tylenol, but then I re returned back to the simple food and I boiled hot water and ginger and drank it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then I, I smash a garlic and put it in my mouth and then swallow <laughs> it. For two days, it was gone. Just to let you know. Oh, well, uh, uh, you know, that's exactly what I do. So there you are. I, I chop up ginger, and I make myself a ginger tea, and I drink it breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But one of the recipes, and I think it's in this book or the first book, The Art of Simple Food One, um, is to just boil water with, heads, uh, with garlic in it, and I put in a little branch of thyme little salt and pepper in that, and it's fantastically curative, as well as delicious. I sometimes just float a, a piece of garlic toast on top, drizzle with a little olive oil, and it makes a perfect, a perfect lunch, whether you're sick or whether you're not. I'm interested in knowing how you met each other. You said that you've known each other since the 70s, and when you're alone, do you talk like this? Do you talk, talk about food? Do you go out to dinner? And is this your conversation? Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, that's what we do. Uh, um, we talk about food. Um, we both lived in Berkeley um, in the 70s. And um, Alice had the fabulous restaurant um, I was part of a restaurant collective which actually shared some of the same people with Chez Panisse. Um, our collective was started by the Cheese Board, which was right across the street from Chez Panisse. And, and the food world is generally very small. Food people get to know each other. Um, and certainly in a community like Berkeley, um, everybody who 
was involved with food pretty much knew each other. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't actually remember meeting you the for the... exact moment. Um, I mean, I remember <laughs> coming to Chez Panisse before I knew you um, when um, my parents came to visit us in 73 and took us out. We couldn't afford to go out for dinner ever. And my parents took us out to dinner at Chez Panisse when dinner was three ninety-five for a three-course meal. And in those days, if you didn't want the main course, you could have a steak instead. And my mother did the calculation and decided that this steak was a better deal. And she ordered this steak, and Alice came out of the kitchen to try and talk her out of it. <laughs> uh, the good old days. All right. Well, that's going to do it. Ladies and gentlemen, join me in thanking our guests for being here tonight. Thank you, Ruth Reichel, for moderating her novel, Delicious, this spring. Keep an eye out for it. And, of course, Alice Waters, thank you so much. The Art of Simple Food 2, available now in the iBook store.